You can save 15% or more at Amazon when you pay with Bitcoin or Bitcoin Cash. Just go to purse.bogosity.tv. You can set your own discount. 5% gets you fastest delivery, or you can set it to 30% or more if you're not in a hurry. Purse makes it so easy to save money at Amazon by buying with crypto. Just go to purse.bogosity.tv and start saving now. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of April 5th, 2020, the podcast that kicks off the multi-core widening. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's humbug guys the news of the bogus. We've talked several times about the benefits of bug bounties, but we also talked a few weeks ago about some problems that can come along with them, such as when HackerOne became non-responsive to bug reports and even started claiming others' bugs as their own. CSO has a report involving them and other bug bounty brokers showing that they can actually be used to silence researchers. In the past, there have been two schools of thought on what should happen when a security researcher finds a flaw. One is that the public should have the right to know that they're vulnerable, and so the flaw should be announced right away. The other says that this can backfire, letting hackers know the vuln exists before the vendor has a chance to fix it. So they need to tell the vendor and keep it silent. The problem with that is that vendors often end up never fixing the vuln. So the industry has accepted a middle road, waiting a reasonable amount of time for the vendor to fix the flaw, which has been pretty much standardized at 90 days, and then publishing the details of it. During the coronavirus outbreak, people are engaging in social distancing, such as working from home and teleconferencing into work. One software they use to do this is Zoom, and a recent vulnerability has caused a great amount of concern. Probably too much concern, because unless you're sharing passwords among services, which you shouldn't do, then you should be pretty safe. A bigger cause for concern is Zoom's behavior regarding a flaw discovered last year. A security researcher found a flaw in the Mac version of Zoom, revealed it to them, and gave them the standard 90 days to fix it. They didn't, so he published, and they fixed it quickly amidst a flurry of negative media reporting. But here's the important part. Zoom had offered the researcher a bug bounty, but one of the conditions of the bug bounty was that he sign a non-disclosure agreement, basically agreeing never to publish the details of what he found. And CSO has a report of this being standard with bug bounty platforms, including HackerOne, BugCrowd, and Synac. Katie Mazuris, former chief policy officer for HackerOne and now founder and CEO of Luda Security, calls it a perversion. The proper thing for a company to do is to have a VDP, a Vulnerability Disclosure Program, and bug bounties can be a part of that. The FTC considers VDPs to be a best practice, and the Department of Homeland Security has required all federal civilian agencies to have one. The problem is they can be a real challenge. According to HackerOne founder and CTO Alex Rice, quote, Getting ready for a VDP is technically straightforward, but politically is a harder challenge. Today we have people launching private bounty programs before VDPs, and that's a model that's worked well to start building that researcher relationship with a small number of hackers in a private engagement. We could debate all day whether that's right or not. Our conclusion is that it's right for some organizations. But Mazuris doesn't see it that way. Quote, These commercial bug bounty programs are perverting the entire ecosystem, and I want to see this stop, even if it costs me personally. I am speaking to you in the opposite direction of my own financial gain. And the problem is these NDAs. We've quoted Robert Graham quite a lot on this podcast. He told CSO, quote, 
Bug bounties are best when transparent and open. The more you try to close them down and place NDAs on them, the less effective they are, the more they become about marketing rather than security. And it's even worse than that. Some hackers have been told that if they disclose a vuln to the public, they'll be prosecuted under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and jailed for a decade or more. PayPal, for example, says specifically to use HackerOne to submit flaws and agree to all the terms, including the NDA. And if the flaw is reported any other way, they'll refuse the safe harbor protection. Those terms were published and facilitated by HackerOne. EFF Senior Attorney Alan Crocker says this denial of safe harbor is a huge concern. Quote, The terms of many bug bounty programs are often written to give the company leeway to determine, in its sole discretion, whether a researcher has met the criteria for a safe harbor. That obviously limits how much comfort researchers can take from the offer of a safe harbor. EFF strongly believes that security researchers have a First Amendment right to report their research and that disclosure of vulnerabilities is highly beneficial. And, in fact, a lot of security researchers refuse to participate in bug bounty programs because of these NDAs. Among them, one of Google Project Zero's top researchers, Tavis Ormandy, who tweeted in 2019, I refuse to agree to terms before reporting a vulnerability. It's like saying you're going to make a truthful, verifiable, and reproducible claim about a product, but willing to give the vendor a short window to make changes first if they wish to do so. No requirement to act if they don't want to or don't care. Bug bounties are a good idea, but they should be a value-added part of a security disclosure policy, and they absolutely should not be accompanied by an NDA. If you're tired of these promos, regular supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv and sign up for Patreon or Subscribestar at any level. Ads are annoying, but ad blockers prevent publishers from making money. What if you could support your favorite websites, YouTube creators, Twitch streamers, social accounts, and many more ad-free and without paying anything, and even make some money yourself? It's not a pipe dream, it's airtime. Go to airtime.bogosity.tv and get the browser extension, and you'll earn cryptocurrency for the sites you visit, and so will the publisher. This is not a crypto miner. You and the publisher will both get part of the reward from current miners of the BitTube cryptocurrency, with no middleman taking a cut. Even if the publisher hasn't signed up yet, his tube will be put into a dedicated wallet that he can claim upon sign-up. You can also use your tube to tip publishers and even purchase products. Airtime monetizes users and publishers with no ads or crypto miners. Go to airtime.bogosity.tv and start making money now. Now for some good news. A federal court has determined that violating a website's terms of service is not a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The fact that this was ever even a question is absolutely horrific. In effect, it would mean that unelected people working at corporations could write their own rules that have the full effect of criminal law. Or as Judge John Bates ruled, Criminalizing terms of service violations risks turning each website into its own criminal jurisdiction and each webmaster into his own legislature. The ACLU, on behalf of a group of academics and journalists, took this to court over part of the CFAA, which makes it a crime to, quote, access a computer without authorization or exceed authorized access. They argued that this was so broad that it would cover investigative research and therefore was a violation of the First Amendment. 
It's supposed to apply to things like bypassing or hacking your way through password protections, but the TOS of websites often isn't even presented to the user and comprises pages and pages of complex and vaguely worded rules and restrictions that could change at any moment without notice. It's one thing when websites use these terms to cover their own keysters legally, it's another thing entirely when they want to use them to restrict the liberties of their visitors. The first part of the ruling concerned unauthorized access. Quote, the court concludes that agreeing to such contractual restrictions, although that may have consequences for civil liability under other federal and state laws, is not sufficient to trigger criminal liability under the CFAA. In other words, terms of service do not constitute permission requirements that, if violated, trigger criminal liability. In fact, they ruled, quote, A user should be deemed to have accessed a computer without authorization only when the user bypasses an authenticating permission requirement or an authentication gate, such as a password restriction that requires a user to demonstrate that the user is the person who has access rights to the information accessed. And the other part was about exceeding authorized access, and they ruled, quote, Even if reading exceeds authorized access to exclude terms of service violations on public websites is not the only reasonable interpretation, adopting the narrow approach is the wisest path forward. In agreement with the clear weight of relevant cases, then, the court adopts this narrow interpretation of the CFAA. In other words, it doesn't matter if you can make a case for different readings that do make it broader. Among all of the reasonable readings, you choose the narrowest one, the one that creates the fewest criminals. There's still a lot of disagreement in the courts about this, but overall, it's going in this direction. The final say can only be from the Supreme Court, though. If it ever comes to that, here's hoping they see sense. If you're on the Wi-Fi in the coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age, so go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world, and they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. So the copyright cultists just get worse and worse. The Internet Archive is a gift to the world. Randall Monroe said in an XKCD comic that Archive.org and projects like it, quote, are invaluable projects which, if they didn't exist, we would dismiss as obviously ridiculous and unworkable. And yet it offers, among many other things, the unlimited borrowing of 1.4 million books, giving us free and easy-to-access reading material during our social separation. But publishing and pro-copyright groups, particularly the Copyright Alliance, have decided to pick now to attack them. The Authors Guild was appalled by their decision to suspend waitlists to make it so that more people can read these books during the outbreak. Quote, 
IA has no rights whatsoever to these books, much less to give them away indiscriminately without consent of the publisher or author. We are shocked that the Internet Archive would use the COVID-19 epidemic as an excuse to push copyright law further out to the edges and in doing so harm authors, many of whom are already struggling. Wow, really? You guys are accusing them of using COVID-19 as an excuse to push their agenda? They're helping people! What are you doing? They went on to say, quote, Acting as a piracy site, of which there are already too many, the Internet Archive tramples on authors' rights by giving away their books to the world. The National Writers' Union had similar comments. Even though what they are doing falls completely within compliance of controlled digital lending. As the IA wrote, it's really suspicious that they personally are being picked on. Quote, Right now, today, there are 650 million books that taxpaying citizens have paid to access that are sitting on shelves in closed libraries, inaccessible to them. And that's just in public libraries. People can't get to the libraries, so they're getting them online instead. But the Behemoth Copyright Alliance decided that this was a good issue to hitch their horse to. Quote, Unfortunately, while most people are doing the right thing and rallying in support of one another, there are also those who are taking advantage of the mayhem to throw bricks through store windows and make things much worse for those that need our help. There is no better example of this than Brewster Kale and the Internet Archive. At a time when authors, like many others, are struggling to pay the rent and put food on the table, Kale and the Internet Archive are throwing bricks through their windows and looting their houses. I mean, seriously? Because authors aren't being paid for sitting at home doing nothing like most people aren't right now? Is there any legitimate reason why your privileged class should continue to get royalties for sitting on their asses while the rest of us are having to re-budget like crazy? Of course, this is actually a criticism of the National Emergency Library itself. They're just trying to psychopathically use COVID-19 as an excuse to go against it like they've always wanted to do, with libraries and other lending institutions on their targets next, probably with the first sale doctrine to follow. And they're doing it while hypocritically claiming the IA are the ones abusing the COVID-19 pandemic. Unbelievable. They are the ones who are vile. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium.
Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now. And now it's time to denitrate this week's biggest bogan emitter. And this week it goes to Zoom, which I mentioned earlier, and it's actually the subject of both of these last two segments. The first is around their claims to be providing end-to-end encryption. They're happy to make the claim, but when The Intercept reached out to them for a comment, Zoom replied, Currently, it is not possible to enable end-to-end encryption for Zoom video meetings. Zoom video meetings use a combination of TCP and UDP. TCP connections are made using TLS, and UDP connections are encrypted with AES using a key negotiated over TLS connection. In other words, their so-called end-to-end encryption is nothing more than the regular TLS encryption that secures the rest of the web. End-to-end encryption is there so that only the parties to the conversation can have access to decrypt it. And no one else can, not even Zoom. That's the important part. Zoom protects you from man-in-the-middle attacks, but Zoom itself can see into your conversation. Signal works properly. The service provides encrypted service to their users, but they don't have the keys necessary to decrypt the messages. Only the involved parties have that. But Zoom says they have end-to-end encryption because they consider themselves to be one of the ends. That's not how it works. Two researchers at Citizen Lab found, quote, By default, all participants' audio and video in a Zoom meeting appears to be encrypted and decrypted with a single AES-128 key shared amongst the participants. The AES key appears to be generated and distributed to the meeting's participants by Zoom services. In addition, during multiple test calls in North America, we observed keys for encrypting and decrypting meetings transmitted to servers in Beijing, China. Yikes! Not only that, but it's encrypted in a mode known as Electronic Codebook. Without getting technical, ECB is prone to information leaks because anything someone repeats is encrypted in exactly the same way. I'm linking in the show notes to a picture of Tux the Linux Penguin encrypted with ECB. There's some weird distortion going on, but you can still tell that it's Tux. It's no worse than trying to watch TV back in the days of rabbit ears. But as security expert Matthew Green tweeted, People are worried about the fact that Zoom encrypts with ECB. This is bad, and it's a red flag for crypto. But compared to sending the encryption keys to Chinese servers, it is basically a parking citation. The researchers concluded, The rapid uptake of teleconference platforms such as Zoom, without proper vetting, potentially puts trade secrets, state secrets, and human rights defenders at risk. Companies and individuals might erroneously assume that because a company is publicly listed or is a major household name, that this means the app is designed using security best practices. As we showed in this report, that assumption is false. So all of that makes Zoom this week's biggest bogan emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. 
Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one customer service. Go to Firmoo, that's F-I-R-M-O-O.Bogosity.TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price. Once again, that's Firmoo.Bogosity.TV. And now let's emblematize this week's Idiot And this week it goes to Senator Richard Blumenthal, who is one of the ones complaining that Zoom doesn't have end-to-end encryption, even though that's the very kind of encryption he himself wants to outlaw. He was a co-sponsor of FOSTA and was infamous for saying that if a company can't afford the infrastructure to comply with it, that they should go out of business. He's also a co-sponsor of the Earn It Act, which, as we covered in a previous podcast, not only threatens Section 230, but would also effectively ban end-to-end encryption. On March 31st, he tweeted, Millions of Americans are now using Zoom to attend school, seek medical help, and socialize with their friends. Privacy and cybersecurity risks shouldn't be added to their list of worries. I'm calling for answers from Zoom on how it handles our private data. He sent an angry letter to Zoom demanding answers, in part, quote, Does Zoom provide end-to-end encryption, as the term is commonly understood by cybersecurity experts for video conferences? Please describe when end-to-end encryption is available for users and how the personal data is encrypted. Okay, that's a good question. And it's good that a senator is asking it, at least. But Blumenthal? He's demanding that they provide a service that he himself says enables child molestation. But now it, quote, poses significant risks to the privacy and safety of its users. So Rihanna Pfefferkorn, Associate Director of Surveillance and Cybersecurity at Stanford Center for Internet and Society, tweeted, You are a co-sponsor of a bill that everyone, including you, knows is a Trojan horse for banning end-to-end encryption. Your bill would force Zoom to do a crappy job protecting privacy and security. She also tweeted, Senator Blumenthal is pretending to care about your privacy online. Last month, he took the position that you have no right to privacy online. Here's where he says so, and included a screenshot where he quoted Neil Gorsuch out of context saying, Individuals lack any reasonable expectation of privacy and so forfeit any Fourth Amendment protections and materials they choose to share with third parties. In a follow-up, she pointed out, But in arguing that Americans have no online privacy rights, he misleadingly omitted key parts of the court case he said supported that claim. In fact, it said the exact opposite. Anyway, back to Blumenthal in another tweet, quote, I am calling on Zoom to take urgent and aggressive action to stop the racist trolls and peddlers of hate that are silencing and bullying communities. Check out these steps from the ADL on protecting yourself. So he hates the First Amendment too. Do you see any surprise on my face? No, you don't. And that's not just because this is an audio podcast. Of course, over a week earlier, Zoom had already published details of how they plan to stop Zoom bombing, but I guess the parade has to actually exist before you can jump in front of it and pretend to be leading it. But in answer to your question, Senator, no, they don't have end-to-end encryption. They have a backdoor for law enforcement, just like you want, that's being abused. Who'd a thunk? So all of that makes Richard Blumenthal this week's Idiot Extraordinary!
wraps up this. Anybody that would send his own brother to the hot seat gets my vote edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please keep this podcast going by subscribing and supporting in one of several ways you can find at donate.bogosity.tv, including PayPal, crypto, and subscribing at Patreon or Subscribestar to listen early and ad-free. Also, please come to discord.bogosity.tv where you can join the discussion and post a question, statement, news article, or rant. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Eugene McCarthy. Being in politics is like being a football coach. You have to be smart enough to understand the game and dumb enough to think it's important. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed out of Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial or Derivatives 4.0 International License. are annoying, but ad blockers prevent publishers from making money. What if you could support your favorite websites, YouTube creators, Twitch streamers, social accounts, and many more ad-free and without paying anything, and even make some money yourself? It's not a pipe dream, it's airtime. Go to airtime.bogosity.tv and get the browser extension and you'll earn cryptocurrency for the sites you visit, and so will the publisher. This is not a crypto miner. You and the publisher will both get part of the reward from current miners of the BitTube cryptocurrency, with no middleman taking a cut. Even if the publisher hasn't signed up yet, his tube will be put into a dedicated wallet that he can claim upon sign-up. You can also use your tube to tip publishers and even purchase products. Airtime monetizes users and publishers with no ads or crypto miners. Go to airtime.bogosity.tv and start making money now.